morning, guys. A couple of announcements real quick. Um, first of all, in between services, in between first and second service, um, the coffee shop is open, and there's going to be just little pastries and stuff. Just want to encourage a little bit of um, foster a little bit of time of fellowship. You know, I, I know that a lot of people are kind of cut off a little bit, you know, and um, alone, and you're already here. You might as well hang out. You're already here. You might as well get built up in the Lord and, um, and encouraged by one another. So I encourage you guys, if you come to first service normally, stay a little bit late. Or if you uh, come to second service, come a little early. Come hang out. Encourage one other, encourage each other in the faith. Drink some coffee. Have a good time. And um, it'll be good. Second, the 31st, the last Sunday of the month, um, is baptism. If you want to get baptized, you've not been baptized, or maybe you were baptized before you had fully made a commitment to the Lord, um, come see Jen or myself, and we will get you on the schedule, kind of talk about all that that entails. And then that same evening, we're going to have worship in the parking lot again. So we'll get the uh, fire barrels going and some snacks, and um, it's going to be a good time. So I encourage you guys to try to make it out for that. Let's pray before we get in the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and um, Lord, we need you. We need your spirit, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need your direction, Lord. We just, we need you in our lives, and we pray that you would meet us here this morning that you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself, Lord, <clears throat> that you would give us your peace and your comfort and your direction. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, as we um, finish off Acts chapter 13 and move into Acts chapter 14, we're going to see the picture of a, of a man who, who ran into many obstacles in his life as he endeavored to serve the Lord. As we look at Paul's life, we see that life just, it didn't go his way a lot of times, did it? Right? Paul often ran into unjust leaders, hostile opposition from the world, hostile opposition from, from his own people, the Jews, sometimes hostile opposition from from other believers, right? Paul seems like he was always getting kicked down, right? He was always getting beat up, figuratively and, and literally as it happens. And for a man like Paul, I'm sure there was a lot of opportunity for him to be like, you know, woe is me. Life is unfair. And I think there was opportunity for him to, to question God to question God's love, maybe, to question God's will. Certainly opportunity to, to be confused and to not understand why all these things were taking place around him, why these things were happening to him. And we also see a man who, though he was knocked down, he always got up, didn't he? He always pressed on. He always kept moving forward no matter what the enemy threw at him. This morning, as we finish up 13 and move into 14, we're going to see four little, 
four little snapshots, really, of, of Paul's missionary journey. Remember, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're on their, their inaugural mission trip. They're on their first mission trip, and they're going from, <clears throat> from city to city, sharing the good news with people. And this morning, we're going to look at these, these four brief stops that Paul made and kind of hopefully learn a, a lesson or two from each one of these visits. Last time we were in Acts 13, we, we were looking at Paul's visit to Antioch of Pisidia. And remember, we didn't finish that. We left off with Paul. He had visited the synagogue, and he had shared the gospel with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And this is where we're going to pick up the text in Acts chapter 13, verse 44, in Antioch of Pisidia. It says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You remember last week, Luke noted that as they went out, as they left the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Right? So the people, as Paul left the synagogue the week before, they begged him to come back. They said, listen, next week we want you to come and we want you to, to, to further explain how, how Jesus, remember, was the fulfiller of history and how he was the fulfiller of prophecy and how he was the, the savior of lost men. And so there's sort of this, this buzz that's been, been building all week about this new visitor and this, and this message that he brought with him. But verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Right? This is sort of reminiscent of Jesus' ministry, isn't it? This is the same reason that the religious leaders in Jerusalem hated Jesus. Right? Because, because the people were interested in Jesus. And this was a threat. The people moving towards Jesus, it was a... It was taking away from their power base. It was taking away from their influence. It was taking away from their, from their authority and their, and their position. And the leaders were jealous of that. The leaders were jealous that the people were, were not following them, but they were following somebody else. And so what did they do? Remember, they began to slander Jesus, saying untrue things about Jesus. Jesus is, is demon-possessed, and, and Jesus was a drunkard, and, and Jesus wasn't keeping the law. And what they're trying to do is, is to dissuade people from following Jesus. And we see the same thing here with Paul. They didn't like what was going on, but they couldn't find any fault with the message. So what do they do? They attack the messenger, lying about the one bringing the word. And that's a, that's a pretty common method of attack, isn't it? Right? If somebody brings an argument and, and you can't defeat the argument, what do you do? You attack the arguer, right? If you can't defeat the message, you try to invalidate it by attacking the messenger. And, and that's, it happens all the time. It happens all the time in ministry. I, 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 can, I can totally relate to this. Over the years, you know, I've heard quite a few bad things about me. And I, I'm pretty sure they weren't true because it was me. And I would have known it. You know, and... um. And, and, and for whatever reason, people in ministry, you know, they're like Paul, they're sort of, people attack them. And, and they lie about them and they create false narratives. And, and remember what Jesus said, John 15, 18, it's sort of a paraphrase, but he says, look, 
Don't, don't be shocked. Don't be, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. If the world hated me, why do you think they won't hate you when you follow me? Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So Paul, he takes a hard stance here, doesn't he? He says, look, you guys have rejected eternal life. Fine. We'll take the message to the Gentiles instead. And the Gentiles heard this and they rejoiced. And look what Paul says here. Verse 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is a, it's kind of a controversial couple of verses here. And we're not going to go into it this morning. But in these couple of verses we see both the, the free will, right, the free agency of men, and we also see the sovereignty of God. The responsibility of men and the sovereignty of God working together for salvation. And I think next week we're going to um, kind of stop, and I want to take a look at this a little bit more. You know, the, the whole, you know, the, the technical term is soteriology, right, the study of salvation, and, and how that works out. Does, does God choose man or does man choose God? And I think there's some important lessons, and we're not going to get into that this morning. But it says in verse 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up to persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the religious leaders, they figure, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to stop Paul and Barnabas. And so what do they do? They get the women all riled up. <laughs> Nothing as terrifying as a self-righteous religious woman on the warpath. They drove Paul and Barnabas right out of town. <laughs> right? And on the way out, Paul and Barnabas, they stop and, and, they, and they shake the dust off their feet. And remember in those days, that was sort of a, sort of a, um, a sign of rejection, right? As you're leaving, you kind of get the dust off. It's like you're, you're, it's like you're, I don't want anything to do with you guys. You know, I'm shaking the cooties off and I'm going home. But we see that despite all of this, the Lord was at work. You know, and when we see that the Lord started to work among these new believers there, despite all the chaos that was going on. We see that there, there was a church being planted. And as we get to the end of chapter 14, we're going to find them kind of circling back around. And we see that there was, there was a legitimate movement of the Holy Spirit that was started here. Our next stop in chapter 14, verse 1, is Iconium. 
Now at Iconium, they entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So here we see a, another very similar story unfold, right? Paul shows up, goes to the synagogue. He preaches to the Jews first. It says that some of the Jews believe, and some of the, the Gentile converts to Judaism believe also. But again, those who, who rejected the gospel message, they begin to stir up trouble for Paul. And Paul, he's not scared. He doesn't run away. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. Right? He, he stays in and continues to teach them. Right? He, he continues to, to bring the message of the cross to whoever wants to hear it. In fact, Luke notes in verse 3 that he stayed for a long time, boldly preaching about the grace of the Lord. And, and I love this, that Paul and Barnabas and their little missionary company, they, they're not easily discouraged. They don't run away at the first sign of trouble. Trouble comes and they... And they just keep pushing forward, boldly proclaiming the truth. And, and I look at that and I say, man, we, we need that boldness. We need that passion. We, we need that, 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 that fearlessness in the face of opposition. You know, oh, oh, how we, we need that heart that declares nothing is going to stop me from proclaiming the word of God to those who need to hear it. It says that they were speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witnesses to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the Lord here, he gave Paul and Barnabas the ability to work miracles. And Luke notes that it was so that they would have evidence that the words that they were saying were true. The Lord gave these guys the ability to to heal the sick and the crippled, and, and we don't know what other gifts they had. But the key here that Luke notes at this time was that it was to give credibility to the apostles, to give evidence that they were really God's messengers. And I note that because I want to note that, that these gifts of God, these spiritual gifts, you know, they, weren't, they weren't for personal use. Right? Paul didn't roll into town and, and set up a little medical clinic. Right? He didn't heal people and then drop a bill in the mail. Right? He didn't try to use his, his gifts and his callings to, to, to affect personal gain, to, to, to expand his own kingdom. He used the gifts that the Lord gave him for the kingdom of God. He didn't try to, to take any of the credit for himself. He didn't he didn't try to glorify himself. It was God's gift used for God's kingdom. 
And I note that because that's the attitude, that's the kind of person that the Lord is looking for. That's the kind of person the Lord wants to use and bless. And we're going to see that again in the next little story. But here in verse 5 and 6, again, they're, they're driven out of town by the religious leaders. And, and it's worth noting that they stayed for a long time despite the opposition that they were facing. They stayed until the Lord said that it was time to go. And I think that that's the key. They didn't stay because it was easy, and they didn't leave because it was hard. They stayed and they left because they were moving in step with the Holy Spirit. They were, they were, they were moving in, in, in the rhythm of the Holy Spirit. And we see in verse 8, they moved on to an area called Lystra. And we see an interesting story here in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there is a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So imagine the scene here. Paul and Barnabas, they're kind of rolling through town. They pick a spot and they start preaching. And, you know, they're going through the Old Testament. They're talking about sin salvation, redemption, the whole gospel message. And as they are, they, 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 they realize that there's this crippled guy who, who's sitting and he's listening to Paul's teachings. And so Paul looks at the guy and it says he realized that he had the faith to be healed. Now, I think most of you guys know that I am, I'm certainly not a, name it and claim it kind of guy. I, I, I don't adhere to the prosperity doctrines that we see on TV. I, 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 I think that those things are, are simply unbiblical. But here's what happens. Sometimes we as, as conservative evangelicals, we have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit, don't we? I think sometimes we, we see these these ungodly doctrines running their course and, and, and we see the people being manipulated and, and all, these, all these fraudulent things going on in the name of Christianity and we tend to sort of run the other direction. And we as conservative, I mean, we're, technically we're charismatic, right? We, we believe in, in the gifts of the Spirit. We're, we're conservatively charismatic. But sometimes we... we we, we become skeptical of any manifestation of spiritual gifts. We become skeptical of, of all miracles. And, and we tend to kind of push them away. And, and the net result is that we end up robbing ourselves spiritually because of our, of, of our lack of faith. And I think that that's unfortunate. And, and here's the thing. This is what we see here. The Lord is working a miracle in this man's life. And in this instant, it was dependent on what? On his faith. Now, that's not always the case in Scripture, right? Jesus and the apostles, they performed many miracles. They had nothing to do with the person believing. 
right? Jesus raised the dead, and it wasn't, it wasn't dependent on Lazarus' faith. He didn't have any faith. He was dead, right? And we see people healed, and they, they, didn't even, they weren't even aware of what was going on. Jesus multiplied the fish and the bread. That wasn't based on the faith of the 5,000. Right? Jesus walked on the water. That certainly wasn't based on the faith of the disciples. He calmed the storm. Yeah, none of those things had anything to do with the, the great faith of the people who witnessed it. He did those things to demonstrate his power and to show his divine authority. But some of the miracles that Jesus performed they were based on the faith of the person receiving the miracle, weren't they? Look at Luke chapter 8. Remember, Jesus, he's heading towards the home of Jairus. And it says as he's going, the crowds pressed in on him. Right? Everybody's surrounding him. And, and, and there was this one particular woman. And Scripture says she had an issue of blood for, for 12 years and and she went to the doctors, and nobody could help her, and she spent the last of her money, and she was desperate, and under Jewish law, she was cut off from society. And she said to herself, you know, if I can, if I can, only, if I can only touch Jesus, if I can only touch the, 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 the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And so she makes her way through the crowd, remember, and she, and she touches Jesus, and she's healed. And Jesus stopped, and he said, who touched me? And Peter says, everyone? That's who touched you? The whole, everybody's pressing in on you. Who, what do you mean, who touched you, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, I, I felt the power go out of me. And remember that the lady comes forward kind of trembling, and excuse me, Jesus. And she explains herself. And remember what Jesus tells her in verse 48? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So here's the point. Sometimes the Lord works totally independent of us and our faith. Sometimes he blesses us and, 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 and our faith has nothing to do with it. Sometimes his blessing is dependent on us. Sometimes his blessings are held back from us because of our lack of faith. Sometimes he doesn't bless us because we refuse to believe that he's willing to bless us or that we refuse to believe that he is able to do great things for us. I think sometimes in faith, in a biblical way, we, we kind of do need to, to claim it, right? We do need to, to lay hold of the promises of God. We do need to to believe that he is going to do great things in our lives. We do need to believe sometimes that he wants to heal us and that he's able and that he wants to bless us and he's able and that he wants to meet the needs in our lives. The trouble is this. Oftentimes, we have to come to the end of ourselves before we're able to do that. Right? That's what we see here in Luke chapter 8. Right? The lady was at the end of herself. Right, There's nothing else that she could do. She had exhausted all of her means. She had exhausted all of her resources. There was nothing else she could do for herself. She was desperate for a touch from the Lord. And it's not that Jesus will only touch the desperate, but it's been my experience that very often 
we won't allow the touch of God in our lives until we've reached that point of desperation. Acts chapter 14 here. The man had faith. He had the faith to be healed. And so verse 10, Paul yells out across the crowd, Stand up, walk, be healed. And the guy does. Imagine if you saw that today. Imagine you're down at the park. You go down there every day, you know, walking your dog or whatever. And, and every day you see the same guy down there. And he's, he, he's handicapped. He can't move on his own. You chat with him. You know him. You have a relationship with him. One day you see this foreign guy. He comes down to the park and he's got a megaphone. And he's standing on the picnic tables yelling at everybody when they go by. You know, you need Jesus. Repent. Now, imagine that same guy looks at your friend. says, be healed. Stand up. Walk. And all of a sudden the guy jumps up and dances a little jig. He jumps up and clicks his heels together. You'd be amazed, right? Word would spread fast, wouldn't it? It would be trending on all the social media platforms that it was allowed to post on. Um, This is exactly what happened here in this town. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now remember, these guys here, they're, they're Greek, right? They don't have any Christian background at this point. And for us here in the U.S., you know, whether, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you grew up in church or not, you at least have some sort of a, 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 a biblical frame of reference, right? People who didn't grow up in church and don't believe, you could still make references to Noah's Ark or, or Moses parting the Red Sea or Jesus walking on water, and people still get those references because they have at least some sort of a Christian framework. But that's not the case here. These guys, they have, they have zero background in Scripture. They have, they have no frame of reference. Right? Remember, these guys, they worship the, the Greek pantheon. I remember in ninth grade English, in our literature class, you know, we did a, a section on, on, on Greek and Roman mythology. And, you know, we learned about Zeus and Artemis and, and Methuselah and um, Hercules and, and all these guys. And, and they're kind of fun stories, you know, and they make movies about Poseidon and whatever. But this was their religion. This is what they believed. And so these guys... After they witnessed this healing, they decided that Paul and Barnabas were actually gods in disguise. And apparently, Barnabas cut the more striking figure, right? And so they said, oh, you must be Zeus. You're the, you're the head of all the other gods. You're the most powerful one. And they decided that Paul was Hermes, the, the messenger of the gods, because he was the one doing most of the talking. And now this, this town, Lyconia, it was the center for the worship of Zeus in that region. There was a temple to Zeus there. And so apparently there was a local legend 
that Zeus and Hermes at some time in the past had showed up. Because according to Greek mythology, oftentimes the gods would come down and they would sort of interfere in the lives of men. Right? They would come down and meddle. You know, and, and the gods were always coming down to, to seduce the daughters of men, or apparently in Greek mythology, sometimes to seduce the sons of men. They, weren't, they didn't discriminate. Right? And so, so this was a big part of their culture. And so according to their local lore, Zeus and Hermes had come down one time to this city, and, and they, had, they had tried to, to find refuge in the city, and the whole city had sort of pushed them away and, and rejected them. And so they brought judgment down on the city. According to legend, they, they wiped out the entire population. And so these guys show up and start healing people. They're thinking, oh man, this is Zeus and Hermes. They're back again. And, and, and they don't want things to go that way again. So, so the, the priest there at the temple, he runs out and he brings some, some bulls to sacrifice. And he's laying wreaths and, and flowers at their feet. Now, put yourself in Paul and Barnabas' position for a minute. Imagine you went on a mission trip to some deep valley in Nepal where they'd never heard the gospel, or some little village in North Korea, right, where, where the gospel had never reached. And you stand up, and, and you proclaim the gospel, and, and the Lord is moving powerfully, and, and people are getting saved, and, and miracles are happening through you. And the whole town, they come out to, to celebrate you. They want to have a, a huge feast. They want to have a giant barbecue and slaughter the bulls. And, and, they're, and they're throwing rose petals at your feet. Would you be at all tempted to bask in the glory just a little bit? You know, it was mostly God. But if you want to adore me a little bit, that's okay, I guess. I mean, God did the work, but it was through me. I, I am his chosen vessel, after all. It would be easy to take just a little bit of God's glory, wouldn't it? That is a very real danger for anyone who serves in ministry. You know, things start to happen. The church is growing. Ministry is going good. And it's easy to develop this mentality of, you know, this is, this is my kingdom. All, all that is before you, I have created. You know, and people are doing well, and you know, that's, that's mostly my influence. That's mostly my leadership skills. You know, and I think that as the people of God, we need to be very careful here. Because God isn't going to share his glory with anyone. And as soon as we start to get a little bit too big for our britches, you know what happens? He's going to humble us. He's going to bring us down. Look at Paul's reaction here in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea 
and all that is in them. So Paul and Barnabas, they see what's going on. And it says that they tear their clothes in dismay. Right? Rent, renting of your garments. That was, that was sort of an, an ancient sign of, uh, of mourning and, and of grieving. And we see Saul and Barnabas here. They were, they were crushed that the people were looking at them instead of at Jesus. And Paul says, look. We're men just like you. We have the same nature that you have. So I'm just a messenger. I'm not God. Paul says, look, you're, you're about to make this sacrifice to Zeus. And that's exactly why we came, to tell you that Zeus is worthless. We came to tell you to turn from your false gods and to repent, to worship the true and living God, the one, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who, who put the stars in the sky. And what we see here is, is, is a picture of Paul's heart. We really get a glimpse into the man here. Paul here, he realizes that he has nothing to offer apart from Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's a hard pill for a lot of us. Right? That's, a, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's a bitter pill. That we have nothing to offer anyone else. But that's the reality. I have nothing to offer you. You have nothing to offer anyone else. Spiritually speaking, morally speaking, we are bankrupt. And there is nothing good within us apart from Jesus Christ. We're empty. We're dead. The only thing, the only thing that I have to offer anyone is hope in Jesus Christ. I don't have anything else. You don't have anything else. It's Christ alone. That's the only thing good in us. That's the only thing we have to give other people. He goes on over 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Sometimes when we talk to people and we're sharing the gospel message, people will say things like, you know, what about all the people in Africa who never heard about Jesus? What about all the natives in Brazil who never heard the gospel? How can a loving God send them to hell? And we've talked about this before. And, and, and on the surface, it seems like a good question, doesn't it? Noble even. You know, you're so concerned about the unsaved in the jungles of wherever. But Paul here says this. He says, God let the nations do whatever they wanted. He let them drift away if they wanted to. But look what he says in verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. What Paul is saying is that there's always been something to point people to the true and living God if they were looking. Remember a few years ago we were in... Uh, the opening chapters of Romans. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul says this. He says, even creation reveals God. He says, when you look around, you, you, you can see that God exists through creation. Therefore, man is without excuse for not believing in God. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 2, and he explains how, how every single man naturally has the law of God written on their hearts. He says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And look what he says in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, all mankind says we instinctively, innately know that there is something more than us. That there's something beyond us. He says there's no, there's no excuse for not believing. He says, you may have not have heard the gospel you might not have had a, a full revelation of who God was. You might not have gone to seminary or Bible college. But God reveals enough of himself for every man to know that there's something more to life. God reveals enough of himself for every man to start searching for God. I often quote Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Solomon says, that God has placed eternity in the human heart. What Solomon is saying is this. We were created. We were designed. We were specifically made for a relationship with God. We were made for eternity. And innately we know that there's something more. And man will never be satisfied until until he fills that empty spot in his soul with the Lord. And, and that's what Paul was talking about there in Romans 2. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Now, it's kind of easy to miss what happens in the first part of this verse here. It says the Jews from Antioch and Iconium were there. Note the commitment of these Jews 
that they walked a hundred miles to oppose Paul. They followed Paul for a hundred, that's commitment, isn't it? That's some dedication to a cause. And, you know, we might not agree with them, but, man, I can admire that dedication that they have there. They walk there and they begin to oppose Paul and, and stir up people against him. And, and, and the crowd shifts. Just a minute ago, they were wanting to worship Paul as a god. Even after he proclaims that he's not a god, Luke notes that they, they were barely able to restrain the people from offering sacrifices. And now they throw rocks at Paul until they believe that he's dead. And they drag his body out of town and, and cast it into the dirt. How, how quickly people change, huh? How quickly tides of public sentiment can shift against the church. I think that this is something that we're seeing all around us today, isn't it? The tide is shifting against the church. And I think that this is a, a time that, that we need to be in prayer for the church. We need to be in prayer for, for church leadership. Something interesting here. Many scholars believe that Paul did actually die here. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about an experience where he was, where he was taken up into heaven. And he saw things that he, couldn't, that he couldn't write down, that he couldn't put into words. And he talks about how he didn't know if he was there spiritually or if he was there physically. But that whole event, it, it fits into this timeline. And so a lot of scholars believe that, that Paul actually dies here in verse 19. That he left his body and goes to heaven. And we don't know, and it, it's not really germane to the situation. He may have been dead, he may have been unconscious. Either way, they, they drag him outside of the city and they, and they throw him on the ground. And you can imagine the scene here, right? These new converts, his, his fellow missionaries, they're gathered around, they're, they're mourning Saul as they're looking at his broken body there in the ground, and all of a sudden, his eyes pop open. And he gets up, and he dusts himself off, you know, and he straightens up his collar a little bit. And what does he do? He goes back into the city. And he continues the ministry that the Lord has called him to. What an example that is for us, church. When you serve the Lord, you're going to get knocked down. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get kicked around. Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not a question if, if we're going to get knocked down or not. It's a question if we're going to get back up. Are we going to keep moving forward? Are you going to give up when things get hard? Are you going to run away when ministry's hard? Are you going to stop when life is unfair? Are you going to get up and clean yourself off? And wade back into the battle? Are you going to allow the Lord 
to be your strength. The next stop here is Derby. Verse 20. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So not much happens here in Derby as far as abuse or whatnot. They set up camp for a while. They preach the gospel. There's a great response to the gospel. A lot of people get saved. Luke knows that there are many new converts. And then sometime after that, they head back home to Antioch. And on the way back, they, they revisit all the places that they had started churches. Now think about that. That would have been a little unnerving, wouldn't it? Right? Paul, they're basically retracing their steps. You know, they started in Antioch, and they kind of made this half circle all the way up here to, uh, to Derby, and then they just retraced their, their way back, going back into all the cities where they'd just been chased out of, all the cities where they'd been abused, all the cities where they had, they'd been stoned and, and left for dead. Paul, he, 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 he heads right back into the lion's den. And, and I love that about Paul. Because Paul, he wasn't this big, strong guy. Right? Paul wasn't this, this super elite Navy SEAL kind of guy who was, who was able to tough it out. Paul was a weak, little, frail man. Physically. Spiritually, he was a giant. And nothing could stop Paul from his calling. Nothing could stop Paul from the mission that the Lord had set him on. And I think that that is such a a great example for us. Verse 22 says that he was encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul reminds them that On the path to the gates of heaven, there are a lot of hard times. And that as you you endeavor to serve the Lord, you're going to suffer. You know, it isn't always easy to be a, a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, just to be clear, you aren't going to suffer if you just come to church on Sunday and sing a couple of songs and just live your life the rest of the week. The reality is, if that's you, you're useless in the battle. The enemy doesn't care what you do. The enemy is going to leave you alone because you're not a threat. But the moment you decide to live your whole life for Jesus, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be hard times. You're going to get knocked down. The question is, will you stay down? Or will you get back up and fulfill your calling in Christ Jesus? And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, 
When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So here's the scene, right? They're heading back through all of these cities that they visited. They're, they're checking on the new believers. They're, they're setting up new leadership within these local churches, laying hands on them, commissioning them for the work of the ministry. And then from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. This is a great verse here, and I don't want you guys to miss this. They were commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. God had given them a calling. God had given them a mission. And they completed it. They completed the assignment that the Lord had given them. I, I can't think of a higher commendation than that. Can you? That you did what God called you to do. That you completed the task laid before you. And Luke closes the passage here by telling us that everyone gathered together. And that Paul and Barnabas shared all the things that they'd experienced. And, and all the things that they had witnessed the Lord do in and through them. And they talked about how the Lord had, had thrown open the gates to the kingdom of heaven, to the Gentile world. And it says that they stayed there in Antioch a long time, doing the work of the ministry. These men had a, a legacy of faithfulness to the Lord. And again, I think that's the greatest legacy that a person can leave behind. Now listen, as we close, we are, we're in crazy times right now, aren't we? And we hear so many voices telling us so many different things. You know, you, 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 you read some people are saying, you know, that there's a, that there's a revolution coming, you know, and, and things are happening, and, and we hear how, how Facebook is, is beginning to, to censor people, and, and we hear that they're going to ban all Christians, and, and we hear voices telling us that, that socialism and, and communism are right around the corner, and, and we're hearing all of these things. And I don't know what's true or what isn't. You know, but I'll tell you this. We need to prepare ourselves. We don't know what's going to happen. And I, I, I feel like we know the end game, right? We know that Jesus is coming back. And we know that until he comes, things are going to be getting worse and worse and worse. And, and we're, we're in a, a, a crazy time. And it may be that nothing's going to happen. It may be that everything happens. It may be that there's a new wave of persecution against the church. We don't know. And we need to be prepared. And I'm not talking about dried beans and water bottles. Right? I'm not talking about 8,000 rolls of toilet paper and, and, and having a bunch of bullets. I mean, those are good. You should do that. You should be prepared if there's an emergency. But what I'm talking about is being spiritually prepared. We're living in, in, in one sense, spiritually uncertain times. Right? We're living in crazy times. 
And in times like this, we need to press into the Lord like never before. And we need to remember that whatever happens, or if nothing happens, God is sovereign. And that God is in control. And that he is with us. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Church, we need to be prepared. Paul says we need to be ready in season and out of season. Whether times are good or times are bad. We need to be spiritually ready to tackle whatever comes down our, our path. And that comes through time with the Lord. That comes through time in the Word, time in prayer, time in fellowship. I think that's why it's so important for us to be able to get together and gather together. That's why home groups are so important. That's why hanging out after church is important. It's not about coffee and and pastries, but it's about building each other up as the body of Christ. That's why worship is so important, because that's, that's how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, and that's how we prepare ourselves for whatever battle is coming. And I pray that things are good. I pray that, that there's no sweeping changes with the new administration. I pray that, that, that we have the freedom to continue to worship. I pray that, that the church doesn't face any persecution. But if it does... What are you going to do? If it does, are you going to lay down and roll over? Or are you going to stand up? And are you going to be bold for the kingdom of God? Are you going to be bold with the gospel message? Are you going to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what you need to do, by the way, in case you were wondering. If you were wondering if laying down was the right option or proclaiming the gospel, it's the gospel. That's it. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for your good word, Lord. We thank you that you're a good God and you give us so many shining examples in Scripture of, of persecution, Lord, and, and, and how to persevere during that time, Lord, how to press into you and to seek you and to trust you in the midst of hard times, Lord. And when hard times do come, Lord, if they, if they come our way, we pray you'd give us the perseverance and the strength and the wisdom just to, to trust you and to follow you despite what's going on in our lives. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. As we continue in worship, um, I'll be available on the side if anybody needs any prayer.